So that's a tough act to follow. <laughs> is he enough? Yeah, we say that and we mean it. But you know, sometimes <clears throat> when we get into life and all of the drudgery and all of its problems and, and, uh, and, and things that draw us away from him and suddenly he doesn't feel like he's enough anymore. Have you ever run into that problem? I have. Uh, when I was grieving especially, that was the one time um, when my mother died that it was just really, really hard for me to feel like he was enough when that big hole was in my life. <laughs> well, like we all do, Colossians struggled with this, people in Colossae. Life was hard in that first century town, and the newness and excitement of that first time, those, those first days of Christianity, kind of worn off, and they were in the drudgery. And it wasn't just in their personal relationship with God, but it was as a church, as a whole. And they were getting false teaching that was promising satisfaction and fulfillment elsewhere. And it was a problem. We can tell what exactly the false teachers were preaching um, when we look a little bit further into his letter in chapter 2 um, and what they were promoting. Apparently, there were some Colossian Jews who thought the answer was in following the rules. Back to the basics, right? Follow the, the, the Old Testament commandments and the oral law the Pharisees had created back then. They felt that going back to law and tradition, that would be something that would give the Colossians what they felt they were missing. And you know, you have to admit, there is a little satisfaction in having that checklist, isn't there? Feeling like you're doing all the right things. There were also these pagan-influenced Gentiles. They had been raised with uh, mystical ideas and, and cultic uh, experience. And those ecstatic experiences that they used to have, angel worship, you know, everybody loves a good mountaintop experience. I sure do. But, you know, they took the mountaintop experience to a whole new level. <laughs> An example of the kind of cultic things that were going on within their area um, well, I'll be talking about a little bit later, but promoting wasn't what Christ was at at all. Both groups, in their search for something more, began to fall back into their old ways, as it's easy to do when you're feeling dissatisfaction. It's easy to return to the comfortable, the familiar. But in those promotions of these kinds of things, what they were actually doing was leading people away from Christ away from the very one who could supply all of those things for them, that fulfillment and satisfaction, away from everything that God had provided to a counterfeit version that would leave them emptier than they had even felt before. You know, they say that a, the best defense is a good offense, right? And that's what Paul does. So he unequivocally gives them the truth in his letter, that they need to know that Christ is enough. Christ alone is enough. You know, Beth Moore talks about this pointer dog that she has, and he would, when she takes him on a walk, sometimes he'll catch the scent of something, and he'll immediately go into pointer mode. And he stiffens up, and he points forward, and even lifts his paw to let them know, it's that way you need to go to get the prey. And he'll stay in that position until the command is given. So she said, you could pick up that dog and move him around to face another direction and set him down and he'd still be in the same position. That's what Christ wanted them to do. He was picking them up because they were facing away from Christ 
and he was turning them around and setting them down in a new direction, in the direction they needed to go. That's what the book of Colossians is all about, the best offense. So we're going to dig into this book together over the next uh, several weeks because in it we're going to find out how to have a fulfilling life in Christ, how to be completely satisfied in our spiritual walk. So it's well worth our time to study it. So let's read uh, verses 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up before you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the worlds it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it's been doing in you, also since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Let's pray before we get going. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are sufficient. We thank you you are enough. And Lord, we want to look at these uh, verses 1 to 12 this morning and ask God that you would just uh, help me to give a delivery that gets me out of the way and that gets your truth into hearts. And may your truth, God, may your knowledge, uh, the knowledge of you transform us. We look forward to how you're going to use all of this today and give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we need a little background information before we start having an accurate understanding of this letter. And we're going to start with where was Colossae. Colossae was a city. It was located in modern-day Turkey on the Asia Minor Peninsula there. And you can kind of see, I forgot the pointer, but you can see Rome, the little boot there, and Italy. You can see Greece next to it. Um, and then you see Colossae and Ephesus is right by it. Above it is the Black Sea, below it is the Mediterranean Sea, and off on the side of the map there you can see Israel and Jerusalem. So is everybody oriented now on where you're supposed to look? Okay, so it was very close to Ephesus, not very far at all, and that's the Epaphras, the man that he mentions, um, was probably living there or visiting, at least visiting there, when Paul was in Ephesus and heard the gospel from Paul, and boy, who wouldn't believe if you were listening to Paul, and he um, brought that truth home with him to Colossae. Paul calls him later in the letter one of their own. So it was somebody who was living there and, and loving and working with the Colossians. Okay, the population and culture of the town was very diverse. We do have a record of resettling 2,000 Jewish families by Antiochus in 2000, excuse me, 213 BC. So they had been there quite a while. That's what those great empires would do. They would pick up people out of the places that they were conquering and scatter them among other places they were conquering to kind of prevent any sort of uprising or, or that kind of a thing um, to, that get unable to get a strong resistance going because they weren't among their people. So they would all be scattered together. And so that's what Colossus was like. It was filled with all different kinds of nationalities and, and, um, and races and, and uh, culture. Um, theirs was an area where religions were very intense. An example of this was the goddess cult of Cybele. 
Now, she was this goddess that they would worship, and this is what the worship would go like. It included male worshipers working themselves up into a frenzy, gashing themselves with knives, and even castrating themselves. They were serious about their worship, but they had this whole ecstatic experience thing going. Um, and it was hard to find pure culture here anyway in Colossae because um, in light of the population, this was an, and it was an area in which a lot of religions kind of did this, where some practices from some religions and some practices from others, kind of you were worshiping your god, you might incorporate this thing from this guy and this thing from this guy, and you ended up with this real mix of religion, religions. It even was happening in the Judaism uh, from some of the archaeological finds that they've seen where some of that cultural stuff was um, making its way into the Judaism there as well. So Paul had never met the people in Colossae. Uh, he'd been in Ephesus, but not that far. And he'd heard, but he'd heard about them from Epaphras. He, he heard about them, and he knew that their belief in Christ was the real deal. Well, what were the things that he was looking for? He calls them saints and faithful brethren. So you know he thinks they're Christians, right? And knows that they're Christians. Here's his reasons. They had faith in Christ, they had love for all the saints, and a hope laid up for them in heaven. Faith, hope, love. Should sound a little familiar. It's in a lot of Paul's letters at the very beginning of each of the letters that marks things of Christians of those three things. In 1 Corinthians 13, but now faith, hope, and love abide in these three, but the greatest is love. So it should sound familiar. So he knew about them, and he said, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. They had heard and they had understood the gospel through Epaphras, probably. The word, word gospel is literally good news. What was the good news? He describes it in verse 6, the truth of the grace of God. Amen. Amen. They had heard, that's what a big phrase that we were using at Women's Retreat last week. They had heard and believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed he had died in their place to pay for their sin and that he had risen to conquer death. And none of it, that gift was never deserved because it was grace, unmerited favor, God's provision to the undeserving. That's why Paul calls them saints in the greeting. They were saved by believing in the gospel of grace. So then Paul goes on to assure them that he and Timothy have not ceased praying for them. Now, if you're familiar with any other Paul's letters, you probably notice he very often starts a letter with a prayer. And, and I started looking through some of the other ways that he introduces with prayer this week, and I saw that every letter, the things he prays for, is exactly what he knows that church needs or that person needs that he's praying for. Here's an example in Corinthians. Now, Corinthians, there were big problems in the church of Corinth. There was incest going on and being approved of, or at least not even dealt with, by the people there. There was great division in that church. They were divided on who they were following. They were divided within social classes, uh, horrible things. They were lacking love within the body. This was big stuff going on. This was, they were carnal. They were not living out their faith. And Paul was about to write a very, very purposeful, condemning of their behavior, not them, letter. And how does he start it off? He says, Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, blameless 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That kind of blew me away. He was letting them know that even though they were doing these bad, bad things, they were not losing their salvation. They were still secure in Christ. Um, and in spite of their horrendous behavior, he's about to blast them for. And that's just one example of what we can learn about the letter's content and how Paul opens it up in prayer. So this is what he prayed for the Colossians. And we're going to go on and read the last section of my my, uh, portion. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. So he begins with, we ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So there are two Greek words that both get translated into English as knowledge. The first one is gnosis. Um, And the definition of how the gnosis was used was an abstract understanding of something that's gained, some understanding, knowledge that's gained through experience. So something that you would actually um, participate in or, or have done to you, that would be a gnosis. But here, Paul adds a prefix to the word he uses. He uses the word epigenosis. Epi is a prefix, epi, and it it strengthens the word. It makes it more intense. So instead of just knowledge that you would learn by experience, it takes it a step step further, and the thing that you experienced was actually made a profound change in you. It was transforming. It's a fuller kind of a knowledge, transforming personal knowledge. And what does he want his readers to have that kind of knowledge about? God's will. What's God's will? Well, it's what he desires. It's what's good and acceptable to him. Because when you know what someone prefers, what they enjoy, you know about their character. You know, I thought I knew my dad pretty well. I mean, I knew him my whole life. (laughs) And one thing I knew about him was that he was frugal. I experienced that, epigenosis, (laughs) maybe just gnosis in many, many ways. But what I, I learned something new about him at his funeral. Um, we had an open mic, and a lot of old friends were there. Well, I, I grew up in Connecticut, and, they, and they, were, they said, you know, anyone who has a memory they'd like to share or something they appreciated about John, if you would just come to the mic. So there was a line of people. And um, people got up, and several of them mentioned the fact that my dad had mailed them money when they were in college or, you know, starting a new job or whatever, and they were, you know, not doing really well financially. And a lot of the kids in college mentioned that he had sent, like, sheets of stamps for them before the days of email, and so that they could send letters and things like that. And one of the girls got up, my best friend from childhood, Eileen, and she got up and she started saying that she, she, she got this envelope one time, and it was from a lawyer. And it was this lawyer's name, Esquire, you know, on the, and she was thinking, am I getting sued? Is, what's happening? And I'm a lawyer would be writing to me. And she opened it up, and it was stamps and money from my dad. He had recycled the envelope. <laughs> <laughs> and we all went, yep, 
that's John Zine, frugal. But also, yep, that's John Zine's heart, giving to others that were in need. And it blessed us all so much in the family to hear that about him. I knew a little bit. I didn't know as much as it was. But his priority was taking care of the saints, and he did it well. Knowing someone's desires, what gives them pleasure, that's a pathway to understanding their character, isn't it? God loves the good. God loves the noble, the kind, the sincere. He values compassion and gentleness and humility. An experiential knowledge of God's will is transforming because the more we know about his character, the deeper and more fulfilling our relationship will be. And what will be the result of this epigenosis, this transforming knowledge of God's will? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, the idea of walking, that was a very common, common Jewish idiom. You hear it all the time in biblical uh, literature, in which a person's lifestyle is kind of pictured like this road that they're traveling along. It's a metaphor. To walk or live worthy is to act suitably, to behave in a way that's consistent of our status. Well, what was the Colossian status? Saints, set apart from God. And so their knowledge of God will help them to walk suitably to their status. Paul then goes on to describe what that walk, that lifestyle is going to look like. And you don't really see it in the English, but in the Greek, there are four participle clauses. I can never say that word. It means words with an I-N-G. Um, modify that main clause. And they're bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, giving thanks with joy. All four of those things tell us how we are to walk. A person walking in a manner suitable to their status as saints will exhibit those four characteristics. So let's look at those four very briefly. First, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. And he also says the next phrase, bearing fruit and increasing. Well, that was kind of an Old Testament thing. You see it right away when God... Um, uh, created man, the first thing he told them was to be fruitful and multiply. Same thing. Be fruitful, increase. He demands the same in Noah after the flood. In Exodus, it says that God's chosen people were, the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased and greatly and multiplied. All of those were physical increase. But here, Paul's talking about a different kind of uh, fruit bearing. Instead of physical growth, in terms of numbers, Paul's using the term for spiritual development. And so that spiritual knowledge would transform them so they would naturally exhibit God in them as they go about and serve them. The second way we should walk is increasing in the knowledge of God. And again, that knowledge is an epigonosis, transforming knowledge of God. It's never a static thing. It doesn't just, you don't just get, okay, I get God now. I did have a few fifth graders in my time try to tell me, Oh, I understand the term, Mrs. Coleman. It's okay. Really? Because nobody else does. <laughs> Knowledge of God is not a static thing. He's so much greater than us and so much more than we can really understand. There's an unlimited depth to it. You can never go too deep. You can never learn everything because he's eternal. He's eternal, and there's always more to learn. And second... We have a long way to go because that knowledge is transforming. We have a long way to go in our transforming process, if we're early honest with ourselves. 
Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Our transformation is going to be a lifelong process. But someday we will be like him. So you can have hope. It will end at one point. You know, we saw a beautiful illustration of a um, transformation the other day. Steve and I were shopping for stone. We were having something done in our backyard. And so we went to this nursery. We hadn't been for in a really long time. We used to live in Atlanta, Maryland. And uh, there was a nursery nearby that we would go to. But the guy there that owned the nursery, he was some kind of character. He swore about every third word. I mean, he, you know, he had a very limited vocabulary. He used several words very often. And he would just go on and on cussing and swearing. He was angry. He was mean. He was downturned mouth. He always looked so nasty. He was so scary that when I went to that nursery, I would make Steve go with me because he was just a little bit frightening. Well, this week we went back. And he's now very old. He's 88 years old, but he's still there. And Johnny had told us, this is the nursery we want you to go to because he has a deal with them and I was going to get a discount. But he said, he said, you know, this is old guy. He's there and he's sitting in a chair. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's still alive? So anyway, we went and there he was. There was Frank and he was at the, this nursery. And so he, he was sitting, he was walking around with a walker and he had two chairs, one in front of the cash register, on the, you know, across from the cash register and another one at the doorway to the hothouse where all the uh, financial transactions would take place. So anyway, he was there, and he was sitting. He was chatting with customers and talking a little awkwardly, but, you know, I could tell he had a good, good spirit about him. I was like, wow, really different. Didn't swear one time. I was like, wow. So my husband and I were kind of still walking, give him a wide berth as we were going through the nursery. We were still a little scared. But anyway, he, he, he was sitting at the doorway, and we'd made our purchase, and we were heading our way out. And he said, well, did you get what you wanted? And we said, actually, we did. We got a really good deal. We're really happy you know, great service, your people are really good, you know, and he said, oh, that's wonderful, I'm so glad, well, good luck with everything, and, and he shook our hands, and I, still, I'm like, maybe it's his brother or something, and then he said to me, I said, well, God bless you, sir, and he said, oh, he does, and Jesus saves, he saves lives, so you believe in him and follow him, I said, okay, yeah, we're believing, as we're walking away, as he's yelling this, and my husband and I looked at each other, I said, we are believers, we are, and we do follow him, and we do love him, and, and as we walked down, we got in the car, we were like, what just happened? We couldn't believe it. Well, he had met Jesus. He was transformed, and I am telling you, this was really dramatic, but he was transformed because of God and reaching out in love, and knowing Christ transformed him. The third thing, how we walk, being tr- strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, and uh, attain, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Okay, this is how walking in a manner worthy of God is, uh, of the Lord is accomplished. God's strength is a catalyst. God's the means by which we can do these things. You notice that he writes something. All power. All God's power. Take that one in for a minute. It's the highest degree of power, complete and unlimited Ephesians tells us that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That same power is what's available to us. God gives what he demands. He asks us these things and he gives us the power and strength to do it. What a God we have. And the verb tense 
shows this continual availability of that power. It never stops coming. And what does that power do for us? It provides steadfastness and patience. Remember what the Colossians' problem was. They were wandering away. They had lost patience with getting to know Christ and were moving on to these crazy things that their, their preachers were promoting. So what does he tell them? You need power for steadfastness and patience. No dissatisfaction. It will serve to keep them on the right path, centered on the truth of the gospel and the grace and sufficiency of Christ. And then finally, the last of these four descriptive phrases and how we should walk, giving thanks with joy. That gratitude is a result of epigenosis of God. The more we know, the greater our understanding of how undeserving we are and our helplessness before him. And he puts the grace that he's given us on a whole new level. Who wouldn't be grateful for grace that saved a wretch like me? And Paul tells us that we're going to give thanks with joy. Now, when Paul uses the word joy, he almost always considers it to be, in that context, a manifestation of the Spirit. It's a, 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 an evidence of the Spirit in us, joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The Spirit. Our transforming knowledge is this compelling thing that moves us to respond to the influence of the Spirit living within us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to keep praying for God and asking for more God, more God in us. Because even a tiny spark of God in us, you think it's enough? It's enough. He doesn't need to give us more. He's given us a part of him. That's all we need. So why does it tell us to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I really think it's, it's an idea, and it's supported in the Greek, of living under the influence of the Spirit, giving more of ourselves to him. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I went to a lot of parties, and some of the parties had alcohol. A lot of parties had alcohol. And um, my boyfriend at the time was always amazed that I was not tempted at all to, to drink. And he'd say, he would say, you're so strong. And I'd say, no, I'm not. I'm disgusted by the behavior of people when they start drinking. They act like idiots, and they do stupid things, sometimes reckless, dangerous things, when they're drunk. So I'm not getting drunk. I'm keeping my wits about me. I'll just have a soda, thank you. It was just, you know, it was, it was my choice. I stayed away. Well, just like my friends, under the influence, they experienced a change in their actions and judgment. We, who are under the influence of the Spirit, we're changed as well. It changes uh, so much about our character, and joy is one of the things in that result. Transforming knowledge makes spirit-influenced spirit living a natural result. So in summary, let's look at Paul's prayer all together one more time for the Colossians. They would be filled with the transforming knowledge of God's will so that they would walk in a matter, manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience, giving thanks with joy. So, what? What does this passage then mean for us today? Why is it important that we read Paul's prayer and take it to heart? When Steve and I were first married, we went on a vacation or honeymoon um, to St. Augustine, Florida. 
Now, St. Augustine has beautiful beaches, and one of the things it has is a place people drive right on the sand. That was kind of new to me, New Englander. There's a lot of rocks in New England. <laughs> Nobody's driving anywhere. But on the sand in St. Augustine. And so we were walking down the beach, hand in hand, being, you know, madly in love. We just married a couple days. And so we stopped in the stand, and we were making giant heart to go on the sand, and we were going to put our initials in it. And it was around dusk. And so anyway, this lady comes driving down the beach with her, whoever she was with, and she rolls down the window and she says, it'll be different in 10 years, and drove off. <laughs> and Steve and I are like, wow. Oh, wow, a little cynicism there. She was right. It was different. It was better. And let me tell you why. I learned all about Steve's quirks. He learned about mine. Our annoying habits, we learned about each other, each of our weaknesses. But this is what I learned about my husband. He was determined to follow the Lord to his hurt. He was absolutely loyal to me and eventually to our children. His self-sacrificing for us, he was a faithful provider. I experienced what it was like to be loved. So yes, it was different. It was way better. And as we learned about each other, our relationship transformed into something far richer and satisfying than anything we could have had without 10 years of experiential knowledge. People who have affairs are often looking for something that they're missing in their marriages. And I'm sure most have had no thought when they got married, the day they said I do, of anything else they would, uh, that they would ever look anywhere else. Well, why did they wander? I think it's dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is what drives us to look elsewhere. You know, Paul Newman, famous actor, he had uh, had a very successful relationship with his wife for many, many years, Joanne Woodward. And somebody asked him one time, because he was a handsome, well-known guy, women were throwing themselves at him all the time. And they said, why don't you ever wander? Why is it that you're so faithful to your wife? And this is what he said. Why would I eat hamburger somewhere else when I can have steak at home? Depth in a relationship keeps us content. Remember what the trouble was, the reason Paul was writing his letter. The Colossians wanted more. They were dissatisfied. Well, guessing from what Paul writes in that prayer that we just looked at, Colossians, the Colossians had not gone deep enough with God. They really had just scratched the surface of, of knowing him. They had so much more to learn. And now, because they hadn't gone deep enough, they were sniffing around elsewhere, around the false uh, ideas of false teachers who were urging them to look around in other directions for spiritual fulfillment, worshiping angels, having visions, acting pious. So what was Paul's remedy then? He prayed that they would increase in their epigenosis, go deeper, find out about him, walk with him, experience his transformation, because the more they knew him, the more they would love him, and they would find him to be sufficient for all of their needs. They just had to get to know him better. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be diving in to Paul's remedy for the Colossians. He's going to move them onto the right path again, away from false teachings. And how he will do it is first he will teach about Christ. And Bill has the privilege of delivering that message next week. How he's above all things and sufficient to meet any year. You know, it's really a good place to start when you're feeling an itch for more, dissatisfaction in your life. It's a surefire way to get back on the right path. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are deeper than we can imagine, that your love surrounds us, underneath us, uh, all around us, that everything that, is, that we are is because of what you have done for us, and the relationship is something that you have sacrificed to make happen. Lord, help us to really know Christ. In the coming weeks, Lord, I'd just like to ask you to bless this series on Colossians that we would look deeply into this to know him on an ever-increasing level, and in that would be profoundly changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.